Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians. We're in Philippians throughout the summer. And we got three short verses today. Philippians 1, 27 through 30, where we read God's word. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, if you brought your Bible to church this morning, you might notice that there is a footnote in several of your translations here. An alternative way to translate the Greek verb here, instead of saying, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy, it is simply, act as a citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ. Because the word there, the root is the same root that we get for the word politics. Act as a citizen. It turns out that there's a lot of citizenship language in Philippians. So later on in the book, in 3.20, Paul is going to say that your citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I don't know why some of our translations, like this, mine, NIV, says, uh, as it does, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy, because the, it's really a citizenship. It's act as a citizen Worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whenever I, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them. What kind of sign? A sign that they will be destroyed. Wow. (laughs) But that you will be saved on the last day. And that by God. Verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Here's where I want to begin. Cultural narratives. Cultural narratives come and go. If you track back 60 or 70 years ago in America, what was the cultural narrative that you often heard, often saw at the box office, in the movies, in the broader culture? I would suggest that the common narrative in Hollywood was patriotism. You know, I... I love my country. Heroic patriotism is good. Now, isn't it interesting? Fast forward to today, 70 years later, and that narrative has almost been entirely reversed. I mean, is, is patriotism cool today? <laughs> well, not, not normally. Now, nowadays, the, the narrative is, is actually far more of a heavy dose of skepticism towards one's country. Patriotism is not very cool. Even somebody as American as Captain America, if you, watched, if you saw the movie, you know, has to go through this period of existential doubt where, he, where he's deeply suspicious of America before he's able to like, authentically don the red, white, and blue. Well, the city of Philippi was not like that. As I, as I said, I think, a couple of weeks ago, Philippi started out get this, is a retirement community for retired Roman soldiers, for retired centurions. 
Yeah, that's going to be, I mean, if you go to it, I grew up in Phoenix and where there are plenty of retirement communities. And if you drive through on your golf cart uh, on any given day, uh, on the 4th of July, you're going to see an American flag in front of every single house. Well, Philippi was probably like that. These are, these are retired soldiers. It was a hotbed of civic pride. It was like America in the 1940s and, and 1950s. Interestingly enough, as archaeologists, as they have excavated the city, they, they say that there is an abnormally high amount of Romanness that can be found in the ruins of Philippi. And so, yeah, that's what the, that was the mindset of the day. You know, God bless, God bless Rome, apple pie, and the emperor. And if you grew up in that environment, as these young Christians did, it would be easy to be a little bit confused about where your true allegiance should lie. A few years back, the survey firm Pew Research Center asked this question of, how many was it? Asked this question of 820 self-identified Christians. Do you identify yourself first as an American or as a Christian? You would hope that the answer to that question would be fairly obvious. Well, it turns out that 7% of the respondents said, I don't know. It's too difficult to decide. 48% of the respondents, not a majority, but a plurality, said, you know, red, white, and blue. I'm an American first and foremost. And, you know, we, maybe in Boise, we think that that's a bit of of an anomaly, but I'm just not so sure. So I was at a pastor's luncheon. Uh, I go to one once a month with, with some of my friends, and there was a minister who's in another Presbyterian denomination. He told the story. I don't remember how we got onto this Topic, But he tells the story. He said, a few years back, there was a young minister who came fresh out of seminary into my presbytery. And he went to his church. I mean, he's totally green behind the ears. And he decides that he's going to preach a sermon during the first month of his stay there on why the church needs to get rid of the American flag at the front of the sanctuary. So very, if you've ever been in a traditional church like that, American flags on one end, the Christian flag is on the other end. He's telling the story, he said, it did not go well for that guy. <laughs> they fired him like within a month. <laughs> like, that was a sacred cow that is just not to be touched. There's a lot of citizenship language in Philippi. Um, and Paul is challenging the cultural narrative of his of that city. He says, your primary allegiance, your citizenship is in heaven. Come on. And your emperor is in heaven. And your constitution is the gospel. Uh, now, to be fair, we actually exercise a dual citizenship, don't we? I mean, we're, we're citizens of two kingdoms, so to speak. We're, we're entirely citizens on earth, and we're entirely citizens in heaven. And Paul was, would be the first guy to say, you need to keep, give both their due. How did Paul feel about his Roman citizenship? He deeply appreciated it. I mean, his citizenship actually ended up saving his life on two different occasions. Actually got him out of jail. When he was in jail in the city of Philippi, his get-out-of-jail free card was to say, I'm a Roman citizen, and you can't do this to me. So 
Paul understands our earthly citizenship it can be a, a great blessing. And the Roman Empire did a lot of good. It took a very dangerous world and made it a little bit less so. It made it more livable for most people. And I think it's important for me and my generation and those that are a little younger than me to be reminded that there is a lot to give thanks for, for our you know, American citizenship. You say, well, what, do I, what can I give thanks for? We're going to have communion wine in a few minutes. I like taking, drinking wine in communion. I don't like the grape juice, but I like the communion wine. If you were to do that in Iran today, 80 lashes on your back. I'm thankful for that. You should be too. I'm, I am the dad of five kids, ages six, 16, rather, to eight. <laughs> eight, I think. She nodded her head yes. Five kids. You can't do that in China. One child, right? Think about it. We, we get to choose our own professions. We get to own and start our own businesses. We get to criticize our elected officials. You couldn't do that in the old Soviet Union. Here's some interesting facts. They say that, uh, anthropologists tell us that life expectancy in the Stone Age, in the late Stone Age, was 33 years. Life expectancy in classical Greece actually dropped. It was 28 years. Life expectancy in medieval Britain went back up to 30 years. At the beginning of the 20th century, just 100 years ago, what was life expectancy? It was 31 years. What is life expectancy in America today? 78.74 years. And you younger Christians, if you don't think that your American citizenship has anything to do with that, you're kidding yourself. I mean, the, the biggest health epidemic we have in our country is obesity, not starvation. So, yes, we should be deeply grateful for our dual citizenship. But the question that Paul is posing is what happens uh, when those citizenships come into conflict? And that's a difficult question. Uh, Christians are sharply divided over where the lines between those two citizens, two, two citizenships cross. So some, there are Christians that I deeply admire and respect. I can think of a pastor, a friend of mine who I love, who is twice the man that I am, who believes that his allegiance to Jesus Christ means that he cannot in good conscience vote in an election. There are other Christians who I deeply admire and respect who would say that it's a sin not to vote in elections and it's a sin not to vote for this particular candidate. Where do the two lines cross? Well, here's a couple of places where they might have crossed originally in Philippi. I came up with these. And, and these are not your obvious. I mean, I, I'm sure that part of citizenship in Rome is just, hey, you take part, part in Roman activities. You, you normally go to the gladiatorial games. Well, I mean, your Christian citizenship says, no, you're not going to do that. And no, you're not going to you know, burn incense or worship the emperor. But what about the more subtle ways that your Christian citizenship uh, conflicts with your Roman citizenship. Well, how about this? The stripes that you wore on your togas 
were basically the indicator of where you stood in the social pecking order. So the very um, broad purple stripes were worn by senators. Thin purple stripes for other social elites accompanied by a gold finger, or no, gold ring. <laughs> that would be impressive. <laughs> Chop it off, put on <laughs> Thin purple stripes on your togas and a gold ring on your finger. Maybe being a Christian means leaving your stripes at home. At least on Sunday. Paul's going to say, make a big deal in the very next chapter um, on how your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who was, he was the most honored and titled person in the universe. And he, he willingly went to the very bottom of the social ladder. He became a slave for your sake. Maybe it means leaving your stripes at home. Maybe it means taking that gold ring and selling it and using the proceeds for the sake of the poor in your church. We also know, and this is hard for us to, to really appreciate, but where you sat at a special meal and where you were at the table was very important to them. Where the further up to the to the honored guest and to the host, that was your social pecking order. Maybe your Christianness means that you know you you move to the to the end of the line, to the end of the table. Because maybe it means to do the unthinkable in a hierarchical society, which is to leave sort of your ancestry, family, wealth, and land holdings behind and take a seat farther down. At the, end of the, at the end of the table. Because you're a citizen of heaven, primarily, before you're a citizen of Rome. Where I really want to focus my attention, though, is on that phrase. Act as citizens, in verse 27, act as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And you see the t- sermon title. How can anybody possibly live Worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, here's two things I want to say about it. First, number one, I guess this is kind of obvious, but you can't live worthy of the gospel without knowing, without knowing the gospel. And and knowing the gospel very, very well. There's a college pastor that I like to read, write stories of his life and theology on his blog. He was in a coffee shop a little while back, and he started up a conversation with what turned out to be kind of a young, avid philosophy student, avid atheist. He let that slip in the conversation. And so the college pastor's like, hey, can't miss this opportunity. And he says, okay, um, tell me more. Well, yeah, I was raised as a Christian, I went to a Christian school, I studied other religions in college, and, and now I'm kind of bored with the topic. Okay, well, tell me more. Well, tell me this, what do you think is the main message of Christianity? Like, at the descriptive level, what is, what's the good news that Christianity teaches? What followed was a fascinating little pop explanation of how religion came about originally because of fear of the elements, because people were afraid of fire and lightning and earthquakes. And religion, it grew up originally as a, as a tool for the upper classes to oppress the lower classes. 
and as a need to justify morality. Kind of standard fare. Well, Derek replies, yes, but I just want to know the main message of Christianity. What does it boil down to? And the answer he got was, it boils down to morality with basically the threat of a deity to enforce it. There's like nothing about grace, nothing about Jesus, nothing about the forgiveness of sins, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. For all of this self-professed understanding of a previously Christian guy, this guy simply didn't know the gospel. And I think surely that's got to be what's behind the thinking of the 48% who who firstly identify as Americans or the 7% who don't even know. They don't really know the gospel that Jesus is Lord. Like that, if you wanted to buzz it down into a short phrase, Jesus through the king's life, death, and resurrection, he saved us from our sins, entirely a work of his grace, and he ascended into heaven. He now sits at the rightful, uh, this rightful side beside God, the Father Almighty, and, and he is he's the king and he is the Lord. And apparently, there's just some disconnect that's going on here. All right, what if I were to ask ask you to turn to the person that is sitting beside you right now. You've got 60 seconds. What I want you to do is describe the gospel, the main message of Christianity, in your own words, 60 seconds, ready, sit, go. And actually listen to a sermon this week where the guy did that, and it just felt kind of awkward. So I, I didn't want to, but how would, you, how would you score? If I gave you 60, 120 seconds, tell me the gospel. Uh, tell your neighbor the gospel. How would you, how would you do? Well, here's, here's maybe a tool that you might want to use. It was J.A. Packer, the great, uh, the great theologian. You've read his book. Maybe you've read his book, Knowing God. He came up with a mnemonic device, an alliterative device, to sort of help you think of the gospel. It's so simple. Little kids, you can get this. Little kids out there. Three C's. Cradle, cross, crown. Cradle, cross, crown. And we tend to focus on what part of that? Cross. Because, and rightfully so, the cross is where our sins are paid for. Or we focus on the resurrection, where we're, we're raised to life with Christ. But the gospel is, we try to make this point when we went through the gospel of Mark. It's the whole, it's the whole story. It's the good news of the king all the way through from it's Bethlehem to the Mount of Olives, ascended into heaven, cradle, cross, crown. And then you could actually add two more C's, one C on the front and one C on the back. Creation, because the king who comes is the king who created. And then the last one is coming, because he is the king who will come uh, both to, to make this world the way it's supposed to be and to, to judge the world in righteousness. Cradle, cross, crown. You can't, you can't live as a citizen worthy of the gospel if you don't know the gospel. So here's what I would recommend that you do. It's always want, love always wants to understand another person. If, if you want to ask questions and have them tell your story, remember that our stories are not some eternal truth that dropped out of heaven about us, 
a lot of times our stories are a bit misleading, aren't they? Because we're the ones who are telling our stories. We happen to be the ones who tell our stories, and we tell our stories to ourselves. Our, our stories are our stories that we tell about ourselves, about ourselves. So you hear their story, and they say, yeah, I was a Christian, or I studied Christianity. You've got to probe a little further. That can mean a whole lot of a lot of different things. That can mean that I, I went to church once and I prayed the sinner's prayer. It could mean that I spent three months in a church youth group, all the way up to I actually had a pretty devout Christian upbringing. But you have to, you have to inquire more about what that means and then always, always ask the question, what's the gospel? What's the main message? Tell me what the gospel is. So that's point one. Number two. Uh, the second thing I want to say about living as citizens worthy of the gospel is worthy of the gospel. It's basically Paul's shorthand phrase that describes the entirety of the Christian life. Now, I know that that phrase, it, you're, some of you are uncomfortable with that phrase. You're like, worthy of the gospel. I can't be worthy of the gospel. No, 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 no. The gospel tells us that we are, we are unworthy of the gospel. But once we believe the gospel, Paul says, you are to live a life worthy of the gospel. He, he mixes and matches the language throughout in his writings. Colossians 1.10, we pray that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. Worthy of the Lord. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.12, we urge you to live lives worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom. Ephesians 4.1. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. It's a shorthand summary for all of the Christian life. You shouldn't be afraid by it because, because that's what you're called to do. No, you, you don't deserve it. You're not worthy of the gospel. But once you're adopted into the family of God, you are to live in a way that honors, that's worthy of your Lord. Maybe here's one way that I will, uh, I can flesh this out better. We know that the meaning of words differ rather profoundly based upon the context that they're spoken in and the culture that they are spoken in. I don't, have I done this one before, the good horse? If somebody says, that's a good horse, what do they mean? If it's a farmer who says that's a good horse as he's looking out and he sees this, this great Clydesdale pulling a plow, uh, busting up the earth, a good horse is an animal with great strength. If it's a little girl who says that's a good horse as she watches the ponies dance in the center of the circle at the circus, it means a good horse can do tricks. Man, that was a good horse, says the cowboy as he picks himself off the, out of the dirt after he's been bucked, bucked to the ground. That's a good horse. Or, or uh, remember guys and dolls? I got the horse right here. That's a good horse. It's the horse who, American Pharaoh, he, he's good for the triple crown. Or in Kyrgyzstan, that's a good horse means that it was tasty in the soup you just ate. 
what does it mean? Worthy of the gospel. What does it mean? You have got to figure that out. Worthy of the gospel uh, is kind of context dependent, isn't it? And that is the, the great challenge for you is at all times and places to figure it out with the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul, in his context, he fleshes it out this way. Living a life or being a citizen worthy of the gospel means he stresses themes of unity in what very strong church was the church at Philippi, but struggling with some disunity. He struggles, he, he emphasizes unity. Um, then um, I will know, so worthy of the gospel means standing firm in one spirit, verse 27. Contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Not being frightened by those who oppose you. Worthy of the gospel was that in his context. What is worthy of the gospel in yours? It's kind of like, what's the good horse? Um, I heard of a gal who came up with a very creative way to motivate herself to go to the gym. She was a school teacher. So this is for all you school teachers out there. And you know that when you come home to the house after a long day of teaching and you still have grading to do, you're exhausted. You don't have an ounce of energy to get yourself to the gym. You just want to be a vegetable on the sofa and, and watch television. Well, the other problem with being a school teacher is you've got to get up early and be at school and at class early. So the end of your day is kind of shot as far as working out is concerned. The beginning of your day is very difficult. So what the school teacher decided was <laughs> she turned off her hot water heater. The only way that she could take a hot shower was to go to gym. <laughs> And it didn't matter what time of the day. Evenings were no exception. Weekends were no exception. She said, if I want to enjoy some hot water, you say, well, what happens when she becomes accustomed to cold showers? <laughs> Which, growing up as I did in Arizona, cold water, I mean, if uh, the thing I am looking forward to the least about Royal Family Kids Camp next week is the polar bear swim. You know, they get up... <laughs> Up in, up in the lake. That's going to be painful. No cold water. But what happens? Okay, whatever. <laughs> now, a critic, a critic might hear her, her method and complain and say, well, isn't that so artificial? Shouldn't she work out because it's good for her health? Shouldn't she work out because it's the right thing to do? Uh, you feel more energy as a result of it. You just rehearse all the reasons, the, the positive reasons why. Um, yeah, but with difficult things, artificial can be immensely useful <laughs> at times. And I find that's really true of the Christian life. Um, you know, having a, a group, an accountability partner, that's totally artificial. Having computer uh, monitoring software when you're on the internet, that's totally artificial. And man, it helps. Some of you guys, that's exactly what you need. Um, have, making commitments to other Christians. It's, it's something when, when you know that you've signed up to go to that Bible study and Wednesday night rolls around, you're like, oh, I don't want to go. 
But you know you'll feel better afterward. But just knowing the fact that people are counting on you to go and study the Word of God with them, that's artificial. Oh, it helps. Um, knowing that i got to show up for my Wednesday morning prayer meeting when I would much rather sleep in, that's artificial. But it, but it really helps. The fact is, you and I have five neighbors. That we, Most of us live in an environment where we have five neighbors surrounding us. Two on one side of us, one directly across the street, and two catty corner for us. Why don't you start praying for all five of those neighbors by name? Surely part living worthy of the gospel includes sharing the gospel. You start praying for each one of those, those five people. You go home today, and you're like, yeah, the sermon was about how the pastor told me to pray for all five of my neighbors by name. That's really artificial. Yeah, it's really artificial. But... <laughs> but we need it. We need it with things that are difficult to do. I totally believe with all of my heart, 100%, that grace is what motivates our obedience. Absolutely. It is the fuel that makes the engine run. The reason we say no to sin and obey God is our grateful response to our having received all that we have in the good news of the gospel. But I'm also the kind of person who needs something totally artificial and extrinsic. And it doesn't have to be as extreme as cold showers. That would be very extreme. But it can be simple as one of the things I do is I take whatever was the word God gave me on Sunday and I repeat it to myself. It kind of, do you ever have the habit of like tying a, some string around your finger to, to help you not forget something? Or do you ever have the habit of actually writing notes on your own hand? Do you ever have the habit of sticking post-it notes all over your computer monitor or all over your desk? Post-it. Well, I do that with Scripture. The word God gave me last week was for you to live as Christ and to die as gain. I found myself multiple times during the week just rehearsing that. Artificial, yes, but for, for me to live as Christ and die as gain. And this week... You know what I'm going to, this is what I'm going to rehearse. Live a life, be a citizen worthy, worthy of your Lord, worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hope that helps. Finally, the last point that I want to make, and it's pretty brief. It is brief. One of my favorite examples of how people read biblical texts differently was uh, this one I came across, a professor, uh, a seminary professor did a reading experiment where he took a small seminary class and he had the guys read through the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And after reading it, they were then supposed to retell the story in their own language. We did something like that pretty similar a summer ago. We did oral Bible, Bible study training with Leslie Major down here at the park. You, you read it, you retell the story. What he noticed was very interesting. Not one of the students in his seminary class mentioned the famine that precipitated the prodigal's return back to the father. So that's strange. Everybody omitted it. So then he did the reading experiment with 100 American Christians. He had them read the story. Of the 100 Americans, only six. It would have made the illustration better if it was... Zero, but only six of them 
included the famine, and they're retelling the story. Well, this pastor, or this professor, rather, was uh, in St. Petersburg, Russia, a month later, teaching a class for Russian pastors. Fifty pastors in his class in St. Petersburg. He has them do the same thing. How many of the 50 pastors uh, included the detail of the famine, and they're retelling the story? Yeah, I wish it was all of them, but it was, it was 46. 46. What's the significance? Well, you know, famines are pretty big in Russian history. Americans tend to treat the mention of the famine in the par- parable of the prodigal son as like this unnecessary plot device. What do we focus on? We focus on the uh, wastefulness of the prodigal. How he spent all of his money and partying and gambling, and with women, and, and then the famine was just, yeah, okay, that's what precipitated him going back. But we don't know, but for, but for a place where famine is, is big, like famine jumps off the page in bright red letters. And I think that's what happens in this passage in verses 28 and 29 with Christians in the other part of the world. They read this and they see privilege. Verse 28. No, verse, verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not to believe on him. There he, there he said it. Faith has been granted to you. Very predestinarian way of putting it. Or another way of saying it, faith has been gifted to you. In Acts chapter 16, when Lydia, the first convert in the city of Philippi, believes, it says, the Holy Spirit opened her eyes so that she, so that she believed the gospel. Faith has been gifted to you. Like Reformed Presbyterian churches like our own are like, yes, faith has been, faith is a gift. It's not, well, you know what else is a gift? It's not only been grant, gifted to you to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. And I think that's what our brothers and sisters in the other parts of the world see. They see, they see the gift of suffering. They see, this is my privilege. Like if they were to hear us talking about the persecuted church on most Sundays, they'd be like, don't cry for us. Don't pity us. Like you're the people who need to be cried over and pitied. Because the fact that we get to suffer for Christ is privilege. And when you pray for us, kind of like the prayer that we just prayed for um, Cyprian, you know, thank God on our behalf that we get the gift of suffering, privilege, the privilege. Yeah, John Chrysostom, the, the golden-tongued one, the greatest preacher maybe ever except for Jesus in the fourth century, was brought before the empress Eudoxia and she threatened him. She threatened him. She said, I will banish you from my kingdom. And he said, fine, for, for this is my father's world. And then she says, I will make you a penniless beggar. And he says, fine, my treasure is where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. She says, but I will drive you away from your friends and family. He says, I have so many friends and family on earth and in heaven. You cannot separate me from them. And she says, I will kill you. I will chop off your head. And he he says, it'll be a pleasure. My pleasure. It's my privilege. And I do hope that when the time comes, in whatever capacity it does, that our dual citizenship 
comes into conflict, whatever that means and whatever that is, that we would consider it a gift and privilege of Christ. Amen.